0: welcome to bible greek vpods intermediate greek program this is lesson 13 in this lesson we will cover the verb introductory remarks about the verb and we'll just cover the person and the number in this session and then we will look at 1 john chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 the verb is that part of the sentence that expresses action existence occurrence or state of being the verb is the most important word in the phrase as it describes and clarifies the author's thoughts. Listen what Dana and Manti write. No element of the Greek language is of more importance to the student of the New Testament than the matter of tense. A variation in meaning exhibited by the use of a particular tense will often dissolve what appears to be an embarrassing difficulty or reveal a gleam of truth which will thrill the heart with delight and inspiration. He goes on to say, the development of tense has reached its highest in Greek, and presents its greatest wealth of meaning. Among all known ancient languages, none distinguishes the manifold temporal or modal relations of the verb so accurately as the Greek as you can see the greek verb is is extremely flexible extremely mathematical in nature though the greek verb is more complex than the english it is the task of the expositor to communicate the greek text to the english audience and that means we must understand the english sentence structure again Dana and Manti write the nature of the verb presents two varieties The action described in the verb may require an object to complete its meaning. When we say, he built a house, the sense is complete. Such a verb is called a transitive verb. Other verbs do not require an object to complete their meaning. Thus, he ran makes complete sense. These are called intransitive verbs. When the verb has a subject, a direct object, and an indirect object, it is called a ditransient verb. For example, he built the house for the Lord. It's an example of a ditransient verb. For transient and ditransient verbs, the necessary parts, that is, the direct object and the indirect object, are called complements of the verb. The Greek verb, like English, has tense, voice, mood, person, and number. A Greek verb can express an action or state of being in 108 different ways. Can you believe that? 108 different ways. You have six tenses, six moods, and three voices. This versatility affords the author a robust set of tools in his toolbox to craft a phrase. But unlike the English, the Greek verb has two elements associated with tense. Time of action and kind of action. The Greek adds that kind of action that the English doesn't necessarily have. When time is a factor, the meaning will be either past, present, or future. When kind of action is meant, it is expressing progressive undefined, or perfected action. But the user should be aware that the New Testament verb is made more complicated due to the significant Hebrew influence contained within it. The Hebrew verb is by and large dominated by aspect, the the complete or incomplete action. And as such, some grammarians have gotten confused by the nature of the Greek verb when looking at the New Testament. The author uses Old Testament quotations, allusions, or simply his normal Jewish mind as he wrote within his Hellenistic world. Remember, the New Testament is authored for the most part by the Jew using Koine Greek. Let's take a look at person. The verb agrees with the subject in both person and number, but on occasion This simple statement of accord or agreement will have an exception. Language is a literary device, and as such, the author may use various techniques in order to communicate something in a very notable way. So with person, you obviously have the normal usage, and we won't talk about that. But then you'll have a usage that is not normal. The first person used as a third person. At times, the first person singular is used as a generic I, meaning someone. See, it moves from a first person to a third person, this generic someone. This occurrence can be used for a very effective teaching moment. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 30, it says, If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I denounced For that for which I give thanks. Here, Paul is using the I as a hypothetical situation, and the result is that he means someone or anyone within the church, including himself, performing the action. If I partake, could mean just if I or anyone partake with thanksgiving. Another usage is the use of the second person for third person. At times, the second person is used as a generic you, meaning someone. Here, too, the use is as a literary device. An example is Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, You shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In these verses, Jesus is using you as a literary device to refer to the third person "O Jerusalem whose real meaning is the Jews very interesting poetic section that that is next let's take a look at number as with person number also can be used as a literary device to communicate something other than its normal use so the first usage of number is just as its normal um, use with person and number number agree in the normal sense. We won't speak to that. That's just normal. But we also have the case where the neuter plural subject is used with a singular verb. Doctor Wallace notes since the neuter usually refers to impersonal things, the singular verb regards the plural subject as a collective whole. For example, John chapter 9, verse 3. In order that the works of God might be manifest in Him. So, the works of God are seen as a collective singular. Thus, the stress is placed upon God, not the works. Conversely, when used normally, plural subject with plural verb the stress is placed upon the individual elements. Next, we have a usage of a collective singular subject used with a plural verb. At times, the author intends to stress the individual elements of a group, so the collective singular is used with a plural verb. For example, John chapter 7, verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The stress is placed upon the crowd as individuals. That's the collective singular subject used with a plural verb. Next, we have a compound subject used with a singular verb. When two or more subjects are combined with a singular verb, the author wants to place more importance upon the first named subject. Dr. Wallace writes, this construction occurs frequently, frequently enough, as we might have expected, when Jesus and his disciples is the compound subject. It is almost as if the disciples are merely tagging along while all the action centers on Jesus. An example is John chapter 2, verse 2. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Next, we have the indefinite plural. At times, the author wants to express the third person plural to indicate no one in particular and means someone rather than they. An example is Matthew chapter 17, verse 16. They do not gather grapes from thorn bushes, do they? This might better read, someone does not gather grapes. From thorn bushes. And finally, the generalized plural. With the generalized or categorical plural, the author uses they to mean he or she. For example, Matthew chapter 2, verse 20. Those who sought the child's life are dead. In this example, Herod commands to kill all the firstborn, and hence Jesus is in view. But it covers all, categorically or in general, who have this common goal. Let us move on to our text for the day, and I hope you've gone to the website and got the detailed analysis. Now let's take a look at this. What kind of love is God's love? That is the main punchline of this section of Scripture. What kind of love is God's love? The Apostle John addresses all the members of the church, and relates the love of God to the practical aspects of the Christian life. He's been doing that throughout this whole, uh, th- throughout this whole book. It's a practical application to the church, similar to Paul's writings. We are to understand that his program involves the transformation of the body at his return, and we will all be transformed in the twinkling of an eye to live pure lives with him in heaven. But this hope we have in his imminent return and future life with him involves the life we live today. Today we live as Christians children of God, and as such, we have the responsibility to live a life that is representative of that calling. We have a hope in His imminent return, which is based on His love for us and hence results in a motivation to live a pure life, a life that clearly reflects His glory, love, and purity. John, in this section, links the love of God to his imminent return as we live in anticipation of the return of the Lord in a spirit-filled life. This is the teaching of the parable of the faithful servant and the evil servant. As the evil servant says, my master is not coming for a long time, as he neglects his duties whereas the faithful servant anticipates the master's return at any moment and performs his duties faithfully. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Let's look at the first phrase. See what manner of love the Father has granted to us. The apostle commands them to look at the love, to examine what kind of love the Father has for his children. The imperative, horao, the second aorist active imperative, second plural, to see with the eyes, is often translated behold, in the sense of examining with the eyes or the mind. Dr. Linsky says the aorist imperative might translate, just take a look at this love. The thing to be examined is the nature or manner of, of love that the Father has for us. As the adjective, "patapas," what manner of, speaking of quality, limits the noun agape, love, that is, what manner or quality is this love? That's what that means. The word for what manner of has its root in the word for from what country from what nation or tribe. As you can see, the word has the idea of origin or source and speaks of something foreign. The love that God has for his own is foreign to the human race. It is a heavenly love, a truly spiritual love. It involves a love that a father has for a son. It is a love that corrects but provides forgiveness. It is jealous, protective caring and guiding it allows a child of god to have room to experience life with all its pain but not so much as to be unbearable and covers what he will allow his child to bear in order to mature and mold him it is a love that is characterized by freedom and liberty but covers truth and responsibility. We are set free from the chains of sin, given a new nature, reconciled to God, and hence we possess a new relationship with him. It is a love relationship that we are given. It is a love that allows his chosen child to repent, confess his or her her sin, and have a right relationship with him. It is a love that the child of God is crucified with Christ. Or as Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This love is a love that is a giving love, based on sincere affection. That is what didomai, to give or grant or put means. That's a perfect active indicative. It's complete. But also God's love is a perfected love. It is a complete love. Someone once said philo is a love that gives and takes. Whereas agape is a giving love. One that is given to by god what manner of love is this that god should give his only begotten son that whoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life though the thing most emphasized is placed at the head of the phrase that is to examine the quality of god's love the subject of the phrase is placed at the end patar the father it has that definite article it is placed at the end so as to emphasize the source of this love. The next phrase. In order that we might be called children of God. The purpose of this agape love is given by the henna, purpose clause. In order that, or so that, we might be called tekna theu, children of God. We are of the family of God, and thus possessed of God. We are His. The genitive speaks of possession. John uses the neuter, techna to express an address to all believers as a group, and ultimately as an abstract concept, an identification of a characteristic of a person identified with God. Notice John uses the more specific weos, Son, to identify the Son of God, Jesus Christ. For John, the difference between identifying Christians as Tecna seems to incorporate the more classical sense of one who is a pupil, a spiritual child in relation to his master, and one who attaches himself to another, whether that be a mother, a father, or a teacher. And in this case, uh, Jesus Christ uh, himself under attaching to the teachings of Jesus Christ or being a disciple of Christ notice how John uses "techna," children of God throughout his uh, this epistle this letter in this verse we should be called children of God God loved us and granted us the title so that speaks of our current privilege in the next verse, we are children of we who are children of God means we will experience a physical transformation, and that speaks of our future expectation. Then later on in verse ten of chapter three, the deeds of the child of God versus the child of the devil. That speaks of righteousness and uh, love. It characterizes the deeds of the children of God. And so that speaks of our current deeds. Then in chapter 2, as we finish off the book, how do Christians, how do children of God love as God loves? That is a living, a God-fearing life. The heiress passive subjunctive of Galeo, heiress passive subjunctive, first person plural, to call or name, speaks of the fact that someone other than ourselves will call us a child of God and can be translated so that we are called children of God. It's a statement of fact. This is a statement of responsibility reflecting our office as ambassadors of Christ in both word and deed. The subjunctive speaks of the possibility of this occurring, and so speaks of his love as a reflection to others of his love for us. The subjunctive is often translated here as should be called, emphasizing the possibility of an ethical response to our calling. This is a purpose clause, which means the purpose of the first clause is revealed in In the fact of our being called children of God The purpose of examining the God-given love Is so others might see and hear this strange love we preach And call us children of God The association of this God-given love Is through an examination of the children As Neuter of Techna identifies The children as a concept A reflection of the Master's love The world. Let's move to the next phrase. Through this, the world does not know us because it knew him not. The great truth that the world does not understand nor accept the love doctrine of God is highlighted by the phrase Daya tuta. Through this or by this, the demonstrative pronoun utas. This is a neuter singular pointing back to the abstract concept, thus stressing the examination of the love of God for the children, as a whole, as a concept. Can you figure it out from a human perspective? It makes no sense unless it exam- it is examined from a heavenly perspective. The plan of God is to send His Son into the world to die for the sins of the world. This concept is foolishness to the world. As Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The world, cosmos, and here meaning constitution, the order of life that is opposed to God and ruled by Antichrist, this world does not ginosko, uh, does not know or understand the present active indicative. Us, since we speak of the love of God and the concept of God's love for his children, and is not understood because, the, uh, the hati clause there, because or since, the world does not know him. That is, the Father, and hence Christ. To know the Father is synonymous with being a child of God. Knowledge is now in the aorist tense and is used with a negative, making genoso a timeless state of fact, meaning that the world simply does not understand the things of God. Notice that. The present, the world does not know us, And then the heiress, because it knew him not. The world is fallen and follows the wind of the culture. Satan is the one who influences the world system. But God sent his son into the world to clearly explain the father to the world. The world does not accept him. And his own people, that is the Jews, did not accept him. So he died the perfect lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, securing salvation by his death, burial, and resurrection. And it is secured, displaying victory over Satan. But we exist today in spiritual warfare, where the world system battles with God. The Spirit serves to restrain sin in the world through the word of God. But the fact remains, the world does not know God, that aorist, punches that truth the world does not accept the love of God or the things of God Paul describes this problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God what a statement that is. The message of the cross is foolishness. Let us move on to verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. The apostle John now addresses them in the vocative, agapitas, beloved or loved ones, with the adverb nun, now or at this time, expresses compassion and serves as a conclusive statement to the technon, the te- technathiu the children of God. He says that we are, the I-me, as a state of being children of God. It is because of our state of being, that is being in Christ, and indwelt by the Spirit of God, sealed by the Spirit of God that we are now spiritually led by the Spirit of God. Thus, we are closely related to God. This might better be translated, beloved. We are now, we are right now, children of God. It's a statement of fact. The next phrase, and it is not yet made manifest what we will be. This phrase by the Apostle reflects his excitement and joy as he pictures their bodily transformation upon uh, meeting the Lord. They will be transformed by either the rapture or the resurrection. John means to encourage them with this fact. He means to make them think about their current position in Christ, which should move one to action as he his imminent return and our glorification serves as our blessed hope john is an old man his body is wearing out what a great anticipation this is for somebody whose body is failing or the one experiencing severe persecution the conjunction kai and continues the previous thought that since they are children of god that is they are transformed by the renewing of their heart, their mind, and soul, yet they have not yet been transformed bodily, at least not yet. Their final translation and transformation has not yet occurred, or as John says, is not yet visible, as the aorist passive of phanero, the aorist passive indicative third person singular, to make manifest, or visible, speaks of a prophesized event That has not yet occurred, but will take place since it is a prophecy from God. And the passive says that believers are passive participants in this transformation. This is what faith is, is it not? The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We have not seen it yet, but it will be visible someday. Christ will be visible again someday, and we will see his glory in our transformed, glorified bodies. What we will be, speaks of the thing, that will be made visible. That is the relative pronoun, tis, what, is the subject, with the future verb, I may, to be, exist, or to exist, expresses the future state of being, that we will enjoy, in a state transformed forever. And the deponent, Functions as an active. So it is to be translated as an active. But the sense is most likely still there. That is, we will be transformed and we ourselves will appear. What a statement that is. The next phrase. The next phrase. But we have seen that when he appears, we will be like him because we see him as he is. The great mystery of the transformed body is hidden for a time. We cannot completely describe what this resurrected body will be like. We can only come to scripture and describe what it says concerning the future body. The perfect tense of the verb ido, to see or to know, means we have known about this resurrection body and the information is complete. In that scripture makes it clear that we will be like him. The apostles all saw Jesus in his resurrected body and even touched it to make sure it was him and not some ghost. Jesus' resurrected body seemed like his pre-resurrection body in every way except that he seems to be able to pass through walls. The verb to see is used not because they have seen his body themselves, but because they have been given the full picture, the full story of what will happen. The next phrase, The fact of their knowledge is directed by the double conjunction with the conditional, but that if the daihote aim, And in this case, but that when, as a subjunctive, phanero, that is passive subjunctive, to make manifest or visible, is a third class condition. So the better translation is when he appears. This statement is a statement of fact that the Lord will appear again, and that when he does appear, he will appear in the same body as when he left. Jesus' body was not a spirit body, some kind of ghost, but it was a real bodily resurrection where the body is transformed from an earthly body that is corruptible to a heavenly body that is incorruptible. Some of what that means is left unknown. But we will, in the future, that I, me, is a future middle deponent, be hamatas, like or similar Uh, The hamatas has its root, comes from hamas, meaning the same. You hear homogeneous. uh, We get our English word homogeneous from this. The same. Our bodies will be transformed to be like his. The adjective modifies the pronoun ratas, him, in order to make it clear that our bodily pattern is after his body at the time he returns. That is, his resurrected body. The second Hati conjunction is normally translated for. We will in the future physically see, uh, to see with the eyes, him. And what we see will be kathos, just as he is. We will be transformed so we will understand what the transformed body will be. We might say We will see it as it is. Notice the three groups addressed before. The little children, the fathers, and the young man are now all addressed as just children of God. The babes in Christ, as well as the mature, will all be raised up on the last day. One's maturity is not a condition for the resurrection. All believers will be saved and all believers will be resurrected. None will be left behind. Notice what John says in uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 6. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. None will be left behind. Move on to verse 3. And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is clean. The hope that the Christians have is to see Jesus in our glorified bodies. This hope has an expectation to have a life in Christ. That is what eternal life is. It is a life that is characterized by purity, a life that involves being in the presence of Christ. The masculine pos every, is usually translated by the old versions as every man. And the meaning of the masculine adjective refers to everyone who has been saved. In fact, the present participle of echo, to have or hold, means as a group. That definite article is used to translate those who have the hope in Christ seeks to keep himself pure. This is the whole idea of a saint. A saint is someone that is set apart for the service of God and, as such, seeks to separate him or herself from the things not consistent with God. Notice that the hope, which is already made definite with the addition of the definite article, is further pointed out by the addition of a demonstrative pronoun. This hope. The hope is uniquely identified as a believer's hope. This hope further identifies the characteristic of the hope to include the visible appearance and presence with the Lord forever in our glorified, whether resurrected or raptured, but both are seen transformed, are transformed, glorified bodies. What a statement this is. We have the ellipsis, the hope, The expectation for good or evil. But the Bible always uses this word as an expectation for good, not evil. But notice that. Hope does have, uh, in the Greek, uh, an expectation, expectation for good or evil. Biblical hope is positive, always good. And this hope that we have always rests in Him. The preposition epi upon or on him, combines with the locative personal pronoun, atas reflecting cause or reason, meaning on the basis of him. What is the hope based on? It's based on him. And to give this unique idea of reliance upon him in this hope. For he alone will perform the action of the bodily transformation and appearance. The doctrine of hope has to do with the unseen and the future, based on faith, trust, and expectation. Hope involves a future orientation, a desire, and a benefit. That's what Lo and Nida say. The ground upon which it is based is upon God, Christ, and the Word. And although hope involves a future event that finds its fulfillment in the millennium with everlasting righteousness and peace, it involves the transformation of the body in either the resurrection or the rapture, but it also possesses a present aspect, as is found here and in Titus chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. This hope causes a believer to praise God in anticipation of his appearing. To rescue us from his coming wrath upon the earth. But also the expectation of his imminent return causes one to live a pure life. Thus stabilizing the believer. This world view has been called the two world view. Meaning living for Jesus Christ in this sinful world. Because there is a clear focus on the righteous world to come. The controlling verb of this phrase is the present tense of hagnazio, to purify and denotes ceremonial purification. Notice he did not use kadzro to cleanse in a general sense, which is um, but he uses uh, the ceremonial purification hagzio, which is combined with the reflexive pronoun. Himself and hence has a continuous aspect of purification. The present tense with the reflexive purify himself. In the Old Testament, the pilgrim that attends the feast in Jerusalem will spend the proper time of purification, purifying himself before entering the feast. This period of purification served to prepare the worshiper for his presence in Jerusalem among the crowd and the priests. Everyone present should be purified or the whole crowd is unclean. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection served as the cleaning agent and believers are clean because of him, because of what he did. But since we live in this unclean, sinful world, we continuously purify ourselves by performing His, his will through word and deed. Our deeds serve as free will offerings, reaching into heaven, pleasing God. In the Old Testament, ritual uncleanliness meant being excluded from normal participation in religious acts. For example, a person could become unclean due to personal sin or from just being in the fallen world, for example, touching a corpse. But this is not an immoral or sinful act that is touching this corpse. The offerings were the means for removing such uncleanliness. Likewise, walking around today in a defiled world with both personal sins and acts not sinful in themselves, that is, like touching uh, that uh, dead corpse, but it serves to defile a person just the same. For personal sin, God provides a way to get right with him by coming before him, confessing our sin, and turning from that sin to a way consistent with holy living. Keeping one pure means the Christian actively performs the commands of God. Living in a sinful world requires one to abide in Christ. And abiding in Christ means obeying his word. The follower of Christ should keep himself pure because Christ is pure. This statement is an ethical statement. Even though the statement he purifies himself is a statement of fact and not a command, notice that it's not a command. What the statement of fact states, man must himself seek to do. And it is this desire to live as Christ that involves the will of man. The purity statement is related to the holiness of Christ by the adverb kathos. Even as, just as, or when used with the demonstrative and state a being verb, seeing that or agreeably to the fact that he is holy. The far demonstrative pronoun, ekinos, that, modifies the adjective, hagnos, pure or clean, and means that he possesses a far or distant purity, whereas our purity can never reach his. That is, we can never attain a sinless state here in our current estate. Those who profess perfectionism in this life refuse to accept what John is teaching here. The Greek is precise, mathematical in its usage, and it is clear that Jesus' purity is different from our purity. In fact, our purity is far from his purity. He is in a state of purity, as the to be verb is used, whereas we are to continue cleansing ourselves. And how do we clean ourselves? John will tell us next. So translate verses 4 through 9, and come back for the next lesson.